0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Project Zion. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts the Restoration offers for today's world. Project Zion is sponsored by the Latter-day Seekers team from Community of Christ.
1: and welcome to the Project Zion podcast. My name is Carla Long, and I am your host for Percolating on Faith, a series where we explore community of Christ topics with two of my favorite people in the universe, Charmaine and Tony Chavella Smith. Welcome back to the show, Tony and Charmaine. Hi, Carla. Hi, Carla.
2: Happy to be back.
1: <laughs> Our favorite interviewer in the whole wide world. I'm blushing. If only you could see, gentle <laughs> listeners. I'm not really, but thank you. Maybe in the cosmos. Oh, wow. Thank you. Um, Well, today's topic is um, something that I learned about a long time ago, actually from Tony and Charmaine in their Community of Christ theology class that they taught me in seminary. And um, I was thinking about it the other day, and I thought how good it would be for people out here and in the podcast world to hear about it and hear about kind of like how Community of Christ theology has developed over the last 100 and... 60 years? Ish. Mm-hmm. It's, right. Something like that. So um I'm gonna let them kind of take it take it away. Um I know that they think this is an important topic too. So I'm gonna go ahead and let Charmaine talk about why it's an important topic for us, and then I'm gonna let Tony explain to you what we're gonna be talking about.
0: Cool. So uh, one of the questions that we get asked within the church a lot is why has our theology changed so much? And particularly for people who are our age and older, there's this, um, there's the question of why why do we talk about different things and not believe the same things that I learned when I was growing up? And there's just this sense that there has been these shifts and changes over time. And people are curious about what happened and why that happened. And I think also sometimes underneath it, there's there's the concern that if we've made changes, how do we know that we're still being faithful to God's call for us in the world? And so being a bit of a puzzler, um, I like to have questions like that to try and then figure out how can we describe what is happening? And so one of the things that we came up with was looking at the... Church's theology in in three eras. Now one of the other things that precipitated this is that there are people from outside of the denomination too who have raised this question for us and got our minds working about it. We had a student a number of years ago uh, who came to the seminary who came from a Mormon background and had learned some things about us and he was just curious. He said how could Two groups that came from the same roots, from the same beginning um, experiences, have such different theologies. And this was during a week, a three-week focus session in the seminary. And he had to leave because of some family uh, emergencies. So he was only able to stay for uh, the first four days, actually, of the first week. But already by that time he had um, he'd gotten his answer about why are you why are we so different theologically so that was really helpful for us to again to put some perspective on this question of why has our theology changed so much and how can we can how can we understand those developments or those shifts and um, and name them and describe them.
2: So, what we've done over the years is, as we've studied studied Community of Christ theology, researched it uh, uh, in order to teach it, we've come up with a little pattern that helps us kind of understand the development. Basically, as we look at the church's development since the eight, since around 1830, <clears throat> what we came to see was that you could you could clump the theology of the church under three headings the first, the first heading roughly from the period 1830 to 1880 uh, we referred to as Joseph centered theology now of course Joseph was was murdered in 1844 and what we meant by that was that for that first period of our denomination's history the focus was on who is the true prophet? And so, when when the major divisions took place after 1844, even though Joseph Smith Jr. was was dead, the the, the question was who's the right successor? Of course, who's the right successor? And so, when we say Joseph centered, we could we could title it Prophet centered too. But of course, Joseph was Joseph had come to be seen by the Nauvoo period as sort of a living oracle, and so. Um, that seems to work very well. If you look at early reorganization <clears throat> theology, there's a heavy focus on trying to prove that Joseph Smith third is the right successor. So then the, the second period we came up with, from roughly 1880 to 1960, we've termed church-centered theology. So we we moved roughly from a kind of Joseph-centered theology to a, a theology that focused on The Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints as the one true church. The focus of the literature, the focus of missionary work, the focus of hymnody and scripture study, everything focused in that period on proving somehow that we were the true, first, the true successor of the original church started by Joseph Jr., but also the the true and one and only uh, authorized Christian church and that period you know from roughly 1880 to 1960 when you think about it that's almost 100 years that theology had a, got got really deeply embedded in the reorganization psyche and it's still kind of there shimmering in the background of community of christ theology even as we move farther away from it so then the the third period the period that the church entered into in around 1960 and that we are still in, Charmaine and I term Christ-centered. And if you begin to look at at church publications and literature, especially official literature from the 1960s, what you see is that the focus is moving away from both Joseph Smith Jr. and from being the one to church to who is Jesus Christ, what is he about, what is his mission in the world, and how do we align with it? And that's the period we, we still are still in. So, one thing we should say is that this is kind of a construct. And theologians and historians like to create little historical constructs like this because it helps organize data. It's not like uh, magically in 1879 the church was Joseph-centered, and then all of a sudden in 1880 it became uh, church-centered. It's not quite like that. Uh, these these periods bleed into each other. It's more like as we looked at official church literature and publications, you could see the focus changing. And if you follow if you follow that change, you get a real sense of the development of Community of Christ theology. If you want to get the big picture of our development, you look at Doctrine and Covenants One. Doctrine and Covenants One, at least Section One for us, has that phrase: the only true and living church upon the face of the earth with which I the Lord am well pleased. That's the that's that's the starting point. If you jump all the way ahead to, oh, what is it, around the year 2000 and the, uh, the 161st section of our Doctrine and Covenants, you find this statement. Uh, Claim your unique and sacred place within the circle of those who call upon Jesus Christ. So... When Charmaine and I teach classes on Community of Christ theology, we usually put those two texts up: one from I don't know what is it, 1831 or 1832, one from 2000. And basically, you can see the whole trajectory there. How did we get from a church that that was you know, claimed to be started by a prophet who was restoring the real, true Christian church to Earth, and nothing else really counts? How did we get from there to a church which says, "Hey, we've we've got a unique story, but we're one of the larger circle of people who call upon Jesus Christ. That's if you if you understand that development, how we got from one place to the other over that long period, then you kind of understand who we are and who we are becoming.
1: Well that's a really awesome introduction. I I mean it really I mean just using those two scriptures really shows, as you said, like where we are and where we are now, where we used to be and where we are now. So so let's kind of dive into it if you guys are okay with that. I mean Let's get into what exactly you mean by the Joseph-centered era. I mean, what, what does that look like? And um, my second question will be, and you might want to add this in, is what moved us away from there? Mm. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good, good good places to go. So I think when we talk about it being Joseph-centered, we, as, at least as we're looking back, so much of the early part of the church was focused around the person, the personality, the spiritual insight, spiritual gifts, leadership ability, charisma, um, and probably just strength of belief in what he was about of Joseph Smith, Jr. And what what tended to happen, well, I, I, I will I don't know if we talked about this in other podcasts but when we when we talk about theology we often try to remind people that there are four voices of theology that are part of each of our theologies so um, one one part of of anyone's theology probably is scripture or sacred text of some kind and um, Tradition, those things that have been passed along. Um, reason, how we think about, uh, analyze, ask questions about our faith, and experience. And experience includes the culture around us, how we understand the world, personal spiritual experience, the experience experience of others uh, that have been passed on to us, our our awareness, our our language, all those kinds of things. So there's those four voices: scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And they're all important in in any denomination or any group's um, development of theology. But what you can see as you study our earliest history is that within the first Ten, well, by the end of the first 10 years, the church as a whole was depending on Joseph for all four of those voices. So rather than the body lifting up all of these and, and using these different four voices to, to, to check, to be a checks mm-hmm. and balances, um, suddenly Joseph was the interpreter and writer of scripture. And the the body as a whole was not uh, necessarily the the ones who decided whether or not some of his words were scripture, but as he the ways in which he put them forward um, said that they were scripture, and so the body was the body of the church was not the determiner of scripture, uh, which is very different from how the Old Testament New Testament came to us. Joseph becomes the one who determines what is scripture. Um, It's Joseph's interpretation of tradition that determines what are the sacraments that we will have in the church. Um, What aspects of other Christian, of Christianity that came before him will be part of the earliest theology in the church. And, you know, one of the things that's very evident as you go back into that time period is that that Joseph is um, both influenced by other Christian traditions of the time and is um, cherry picking, I guess, <laughs> is a way to say it. He's taking bits and pieces from the kinds of Christianity around him and creating um, a, a new a new collection in the church and and he became the one the authority that um through which the the authority people look to to determine what parts of tradition would be carried on from the earlier yeah. Christi- christianity and other places he became the the voice the in the reason section he became the the voice um that determined what would be um, foundational, um, orthodox within the group. Um, And when, you know, when when others questioned that, um, sometimes they were no longer in leadership roles. So there wasn't a lot of checks and balances there. And then experience. Joseph's own spiritual experiences, um, Joseph's interpretations of what was happening to the, the group, um, then became he, he became the one who interpreted what those meant for the whole group and what God was, was saying or doing in their midst. So So one of the things that was happening is that um, there became a dependency. On Joseph mm-hmm. for all of those different aspects of theological thought, and from from our perspective, from and I think I can say this for many in community of Christ who have studied um, the early periods and tried to understand the theology of that time. We would see ourselves as really part of the dissenters. Um, being kind of the, the ones who have received the legacy of the dissenters in 18, in, in the 1840s, those who um, said, you know some of the things that Joseph is saying, whether they're considered scripture by others or whether or some of the things that he's doing, some of the new things that he's instituting, um, is particularly true in Nauvoo. We, we are questioning, we are challenging. Um, people were no longer willing to let Joseph be the only voice that interpreted those four um, voices of theology, um, and so I think Tony wants to jump in. Yeah,
2: on. so I, I mean, I think that's that's a really good summary and analysis of that. I, you know, as I look at that early period, increasingly the community that formed around Joseph Smith Jr. conceded all theological authority to him. That is, instead of theology being the work of the body, in which those four voices are used by the whole body to determine who we are and what we're going to say, uh, what happens is is that Joseph, as I mentioned before, Joseph becomes the living oracle, and and he simply is the theological last word. Now, that wasn't satisfying for a number of people in the early, early restoration movement, um, but— um, so you have to you have to account for why – how how can you go from, say, 1830 when, as I look at Joseph's statements and sayings, there's a kind of a basic frontier Trinitarianism in them. It's, it's the kind of Trinitarianism you would, would expect on the American frontier, not terribly theologically sophisticated, but it still fits within larger orthodox parameters. By the time you get to 1840, 41, 42, 43 – we're completely out of there, and essentially Joseph's Joseph's view of God has switched from a monotheistic view to a kind of polytheistic view, and people are sort of going along with that. And it's like, well, that's to me a sure a sure sign that Joseph had become the center of the church's theological life in, especially in the Nauvoo
0: period. So then, then there becomes this quandary after Joseph's death and the splintering of various people and groups um, and those who were left in Missouri, Iowa, Illinois, um, Illinois who the, the reorganizing uh, movement, there was for them quite the quandary because on the one hand they believed that this new movement was initiated by God, by the Spirit of God at work in the world, um, reminding people of you know various things that God still speaks. That um, how we live in this world matters. The idea of the kingdom of God or Zion. So there were things that they that they really valued from that first fourteen fifteen years. But there were also some things that they were disillusioned by, and so that first, you know, from eighteen forty-five to eighteen sixty, is a is a really difficult time for many people who had been part of of this move of the movement uh, that was led by Joseph Smith Jr., and they had to to figure out how do we Say there's some things that we were uncomfortable with, or we don't think we're right, but still say that God was the initiator, the originator of this movement through Joseph Smith Jr. And so, and that even after the official reorganizing of the church, um, there were many pretty blunt discussions among leaders about. Um Joseph, you know, they're saying who do, what kind of a leader will will we mm-hmm. want or will we put up with? Uh, we are not going to go back to um, a leader who monopolizes um, all these all the different areas of of our theology. And so there was lots of debates and uncertainty and um, conflict over, what kind of leader does Joseph Smith the need to be? And Joseph was a very uh, Joseph the was a very wise and gentle and patient person, and he gave room for these debates and discussions about what should the role of the prophet president be.
2: So it's it, it's interesting in that in the period she remains describing, like the 1850s, I think we sometimes refer to that as the period of the new organization. And then the uh, you know the official reorganization in 1860. Um, if you want to, I mean, if you want to some, if you want to talk about how did we move from Joseph centered to a church centered experience, well, part of it was that Nauvoo, the memory of Nauvoo, was a traumatic memory to many people in the reorganization. And though you don't you don't find a lot of uh, direct Criticism of Joseph Smith Jr. What you do find is that as Joseph Smith the Third is is coming back into leadership of the church, people don't want, they want to make sure that he's not going to be a, a an autocrat or a theocrat. That's good. right. So you know that's that's an implicit criticism of Joseph Smith Jr. They'll, they would never say that outright. They would never say we sure don't want you to be, <laughs> we sure not want you to be the dictator like your father was. Right. They wouldn't say. Right. Yeah, they would say it that way. But they would say we, we, really, we really don't want a, a person who's going to dominate every aspect of our communal and theological life. And so part of this then is a part, – part of becoming church-centered in theology is that, well, there's a new leader, Joseph Smith III, who's got all these characteristics Charmaine describes. He's very much a moderate – Um, He wants to to have the church as kind of a big tent in which there's varieties of positions. He doesn't like the uh, role—he hasn't ever liked being put in the role of being autocratic. And then there's also dealing with this trauma of the memory of how Joseph Smith Jr. controlled absolutely everything in Nauvoo, and that that was a a painful memory for church members. An additional painful memory for some was that the theological developments of of Nauvoo— Seemed sub-Christian to lots of people who were in the reorganization and and coming into it. Of course, there were still old timers from Nauvoo who held to a few of the ideas that Joseph started there. But Joseph Smith the uh, third, in his very wise and cautious leadership, just kind of we always say we always say Joseph Smith's strategy. Joseph Smith the strategy as a leader was to was to outlive people who had, who had unfortunate theological views left over from earlier periods. Rather than strategy. Yeah, really. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the, the difference between creating civil war and the difference between kind of evolving in a new direction. So,
0: so one of the things that had to happen um, was that the focus then needed, could not be on the prophet, the prophet being... Perfect or the prophet being um, the only way that the, this new group could understand that God was at work in their midst, and so the focus then became on the product, the church itself. That and so then, and then there's these other dynamics at work. So they, the those who were part of the reorganization and those who came to it. Um, between the '60s and the '80s and beyond, um, there was this very strong need to say who we weren't, as well as who we were. And so, we often use the the image that, on the one hand, there is the Mormon the Mormon boundary where the church is saying we are something, we are our own thing, we aren't Mormons. On the other side, there was the Protestant boundary, where we're not, you know, we're a restoration movement. We are not just, um, and this is a more recent thing, but we're not just like those pablum Protestants, you know, (laughs) who are, you know, all kind of lukewarm in their faith. So part of, and, and in some ways this is helpful to think about the church as being kind of in its adolescent years, Uh, during this church-centered time, 1880 to 1960, where it's trying to establish and define its identity, its identity separate from Mormonism, separate from Protestantism. And so those are other factors that made the focus about who are we as a church. And um, one of the things that came from the earliest parts of the church was the idea that we are... The one true church. We are the ones who have the fullness of the gospel. Uh, we are the ones who are spoken about in Scripture, and so our our use of Scripture, our study of Scripture, was almost always for reinforcing our rightness as um, as the the one true church. Our understanding of the goal, the kingdom of God, was ours to establish and to put forth in the world. Um, It had to be done by the right group of people, um, the ones with the right set of views. And so when your focus is on having the right set of beliefs, um, then you have to be part of a group that has and upholds and teaches that right set of of, of beliefs. And that was the approach. Uh, That was the missionary approach, and that was the Sunday school approach, and that was the preaching um, theme and approach for much of that time is recognizing that you had to be in the right church if you were going to be good with God, whether that meant the glories, uh, whether that meant the kingdom of God or Zion. Um, So being within the right institution that had the right set of beliefs was how you assured that you were good with God. So, lots of importance was placed on being in the right church.
2: So that period lasted a very long time. And uh, when Charmaine and I teach classes on this, one of the things we love to do is we love to bring out our, uh, out of storage, our 1912 preaching chart. And you've seen it before, Carla, right?
1: I love that preaching chart.
2: <laughs> so these preaching charts, these were th- these were au courant in, in around 1900. This is how the different. The
1: up-to-date audio visual.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it oh, was yeah. the
1: podcast of the early 1900s. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Exactly. And so these old charts, uh, all kinds of denominations use them. These are, you know, 10 to 12 to 15 foot long canvas sheets that have for example, the plan of salvation painted out on them. And one of the most popular ones for reorganization uh, missionaries in this whole period started at one end with creation and ended at the other end of the chart with the three glories. And it had the different dispensations on it and um, had a very large picture of of uh, the two personages in the, in the, the grove appearing to Joseph in the ninth hour, uh, or in the eleventh yeah. hour, sorry, mm-hmm. and then and then showed the chart shows how there was the what was called the latter day apostasy that, <laughs> that went to Utah, and then it shows the straight and narrow way and the path to celestial glory, and the the focus the focus of this chart, the focus of this theology was on being in the right church. And having the right individual path to celestial glory, and that 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 message survived for a hundred years in the church. It was really the right
0: ideas that went with it, and what was that Sherman and the right ideas and the right yeah.
2: ideas, right? Was, Christian faith here was viewed as having the right ideas and being with the right people and having it all in kind of the right system of thought. So the question then, the next question would be, well, if that was so successful for so long, what happened? you know, mid-20th century, around 1960, what happened that began changing that institutionally for what would become Community of Christ. And what happened was a lot of things. Um, You know, even before the early 1960s, you can see in the writings and preaching of important figures in the reorganized church, constant borrowing from other mainstream Protestant theology notice notice that you know Fred M. Fred M. Smith um, prophet from what 1914 or 15 until 1947 I think uh, Fred M. Smith quotes and uses language from the Protestant social gospel movement as he tries to articulate the church's views of Zion and great preachers like F. Henry Edwards and Arthur Oakman Borrowed constantly from Anglican theology, and so before we even got to around 1960, there was an awareness that we had some things in common with Protestants. That we that and it mostly had to do with God, Christ, Holy Spirit. We sh- we shared something precious with them, and so these these church leaders borrowed. Um, sometimes one wishes they would have footnoted a little bit more, <laughs> but they did borrow. And then we, when we get to around the late 1950s and 1960s, some new some new missionary things happen that are really beginning to change the focus of the church.
0: Right, right. And what Tony's talking about is the, uh, it's kind of a, a prepping um, church leaders and the church for ecumenism to be being in par- partnership with other Christians. And then what really pushed us into that was after World War II when we had um, church members in places where church members hadn't typically been before in, in Japan and in Korea and in other parts of Asia and eventually in, in parts of Africa, um, who who are being asked about their faith and who are trying to share their faith in a culture, in cultures where people didn't care about what was the difference between, um, a member of the RLDS church and a Lutheran, which we were really good at showing how we were different than and better than other Christian denominations. But we had no experience in telling people who didn't come from a Christian background, um, didn't even come from a monotheistic background about who God is and who Jesus is. And so we found ourselves, um, as a church, both church leaders and church members who had these opportunities to tell about the church, um, to be missionaries, whether intentionally or not, uh, we realized we needed to understand better how to talk about who is Jesus, who is God, um, to people for whom this this was a whole a whole new language, and so um, church members and leaders began to ask other Christians, how do you do this? How do you talk about this? And so um, rather than being those other Christians who don't know anything, which had been part of our, our story, um, we were going and asking questions and learning. And um, that made possible, I, I believe, the planting of the church In various countries um, around the world that we never really I think as a church imagined being in Mm -hmm. and so I always say um, it's God's fault God kept pulling (laughs) us into all of these places that we didn't plan to go and in the process we were stretched and challenged to understand who God is in bigger ways and to trust what God had been doing in other denominations
2: So, you know, in that in that in in that world missionary movement that was happening um, after World War II in Korea and as church leaders had to start reflecting on that, one of the things that they were discovering was that missionaries would try to use the old preaching chart, you know, somewhere in Asia or the Orient or wherever, and it would just be baffling to people. And so the the tried and true method and the tried and true message did not ring true with anybody in those settings and so it became clear to church leaders especially as we got into the early 1960s that we had to learn how to distinguish what was essential in our message from what was peripheral or or just simply culturally dictated Um, you know if the church had only stayed in a few places in the northern hemisphere in the western world maybe we could have stayed with that old message a long time, but a longer time, but, but we weren't in those places anymore. We're now being invited into places in Africa and the Orient and Latin America. And, and, uh, the, the preaching chart theology just began to fail as a missionary tool. And it forced church leaders to say, what really are we about? Um, and so what began to start bubbling to the top is that, holy cow, we're, what this is really about is this is about Jesus Christ. It's about helping people in Christian community have vital experience with Christ, and it's about us creating change in the world based around that. So the, the name Community of Christ, which doesn't emerge for decades yet, um, was, was already a theme in the early 1960s. And if I think, you know, there's a story that we like to share Um from that happened late in 1967 or early in 1968 um, that I think really uh, perfectly summarizes what it means to, to to think about the church moving to a Christ-centered identity and message. And so basically what was going on is in the 1960s, as church leaders were, were getting figured out that we really, <laughs> we needed to, uh, as a denomination, first of all, we needed to enter fully into the modern age. And also we needed to do some significant theological rethinking if we were going to respond to, to the mission. Um, They, they began inviting what church leaders sought some help from um, St. Paul School of Theology in Kansas city. It was a Methodist seminary. And one of the theologians that they asked to help them was a philosophical theologian by the name of W. Paul Jones. And Paul Jones was a Methodist theologian, and he was well known at the time. And um, he is now a Trappist monk and Catholic priest in southern Missouri. That's another whole story. But anyway, Paul Paul Jones, in a letter, describes the first meeting of the RLDS Joint Council with with the, three members of the theology faculty from Saint Paul School of Theology. And he, it's it's like. It was like late in nineteen sixty seven or early in nineteen sixty eight, and Paul Jones says that um, everybody, you know, they they got they did introductions and they were getting to know each other. These three theologians are getting to know the the joint council, you know, presidency, bishopric, presiding evangelist, and council of twelve. And then Paul Jones says there was this point. He says "I, I needed to ask W. Wallace Smith a question, which would determine how we should proceed from that point on in our in our study together and this was going to be over a couple of years he says so i i put this question to w wallace smith pretty pointedly he says i i asked him if in our mutual studies of you know christian theology and new testament and the development of christian doctrine and so on and your own movement if if we were to discover that there's a discrepancy between something that Joseph Smith Jr. said and something that Jesus said, who would you go with? And Paul Jones in his letter says when he asked that it became really, really quiet in the room. Yeah. <laughs> and he says yeah. it would. And he says that all the eyes of the members of the joint council turned to W. Wallace Smith. Right. And here he is, he's the grandson of Joseph Smith Jr. And so uh, Jones says in this letter that W. Wallace Smith, uh, with poise, took a long breath and said very straightforwardly, we would have to go with Jesus. And I think that little moment in a meeting of the joint council with three theologians from a Methodist theological seminary is a watershed moment in the church's history. Um, that's the moment at which we could say, you know what, whatever Joseph Smith Jr. did or said, this church is about Jesus, and we're going to go with him, and if that means sometimes we have to say no to Joseph Smith Jr., or if it means we have to say no to Joseph Smith Jr. a lot, that's going to be okay, because what matters is is responding to the call of Jesus. That's, that's what we mean by be- becoming a Christ-centered church.
0: Another aspect of that, too, that that contributed to that this new reliance, um, not on our not on our own identity, not on our church's history, was the introduction, uh, the embracing by some of the the new the new critical history or the new Mormon history, and this started with historians in the church who um, had learned historical critical methods in university in looking at at scripture at the the Bible looking at different aspects of history and who with great integrity and honesty said we need to use these tools these methods to also look honestly at our church's history and this was a very difficult <laughs> um, very difficult thing. Um, some people wanted to have nothing to do with it and were very suspicious of those who would um, question our history, question Joseph Smith Jr., question how the Book of Mormon came about. And, uh, and yet that was a really important element uh, in, in this time frame as well, 1950s, 60s, and 70s, of um, church leaders, and historians within the church being willing to look uh, with integrity and openness at multiple sources um, about our church's history and about Joseph Smith. This again uh, was something that loosened our grip on the idea that somehow we had, we were the one true church and that our founder had to be the one true prophet and that we had to have a pristine picture um, of our past, and uh, and it, the way it helped us to loosen our our toehold on that idea was that we realized, I think, as a denomination uh, and as individuals, that um, in the big picture, it's about God. It's about what God is doing in the world. It's about what Jesus has and is doing in individual lives and in communities and in the world. It's about what the spirit wants to do and is, is nudging us toward constantly. Um, and those are, uh, that, that is where our source should be. That is where we should be drawing from for the life of the church, not from our own story. So again, uh, in a way, it's like coming out of adolescence, where we begin to see how we fit in with the rest of the population, uh, where we are no longer the only ones who see the world um, accurately, but that we can begin to trust um, the bigger work. In this case, of what God is doing in the world. So that's another element that that happened right about that same time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so one other thing that happened in this in this period was, you know, Charmaine's mentioned the, the the rise of the use of modern historical methods, and in in 1968, a book was published by the reorganized church that was for use at our summer church camps reunions, and it was called The Body of Christ, and this book was written by a young adult named Harold Harold Schneebec. He was a church member, and he had gone through the, the religion program at Grayson University, and then he had enrolled in Union Theological Seminary in New York. He was on do, doing a kind of summer internship, or a year-long internship, I can't remember which, for the religious education department at uh, the church's headquarters, and he wrote this book called Body of Christ, and one of the things that that this book did very clearly was it it showed that we could no longer treat the New Testament as a collection of little proof texts to show that there was an original Christian church that looked just like us. (laughs) Um, Using the New Testament in a very, I think, responsible historical manner, what Schneebec showed is that the the church in the New Testament was a a moving target, and it, it took different shapes and forms in different places and different contexts. And so... It, after 1968, it was really no longer possible uh, in the church to pull out the preaching chart and say, look, the early church had all of these offices and all of these particular gifts and all of this and all of that. And see, we've got that, too. That that became a uh, an, an unconvincing model after that point. And so instead, what Schneebeck was able to show is how in different times and places in early New Testament Early Christian communities in the New Testament, the importance, the centrality of Christ and the centrality of, of community and the pursuit of what he called shalom, God's desire for well being for the world, that that remained really central to the early Christian church. And lo and behold, many years later, the community of Christ gets the name Community of Christ. And one of our important uh, foci as a church is on establishing God's shalom in the world. Um, I think it's really interesting that that um, a church that for 100 years had been trying to use the New Testament to prove it was the right church discovered that that just doesn't work so well anymore. We can't really use the New Testament that way. And instead, let's pay attention to what its deeper message is. And then that's kind of how our identity and message began to develop.
0: But I think it's worth noting that people didn't like it.
1: <laughs> True. True. <laughs> oh.
0: People were not happy with those um, reunion materials because they didn't do what we'd always done, which is to reinforce our uniqueness, our rightness, and uh, the rightness of our message. So it was a very disturbing to many people. Um, and the, the second year, uh, the next year, the reunion material was called, For What Purpose Assem- Assembled? And that was Don Landon and, and
2: Robert Smith. Yeah,
0: yeah. and uh, and talking about what is the purpose of the church? What is it that we do when we meet together? And um, and it didn't say that what we did is we reinforced that we're the right church. Um, it had a much bigger view of uh, what is the role of the church. But at, that was yeah. also not a very popular. Um, Reunion material and lots of controversy. And where is that message that we long to hear, which is that we are the the right church.
2: Let's, let's just say that the people don't usually like their framework to be <laughs> shaken Shifted, up. Yeah. Very no much. way. And and this, this period in the church from, say, 1966 uh, almost to 1986 was a, a period of great, great upheaval um, and that may be the topic for another time, but but not every you know, a lot of a lot of people were not happy with the shifting of traditional views. But church leaders were were committed to it. And I think in retrospect we can be
0: And prayerfully open, I think.
2: Absolutely. We we can be really grateful for the I think truly spiritually prophetic and courageous leadership of church leaders in that period uh, to help us move from a a a paradigm that was simply that can no longer be seen as credible or true into a paradigm that really captured the deeper things about who we who we felt we were called to be.
1: Well, no wonder people didn't really like it. I mean, it, that makes sense to me. I, when you are the one true church, when you, are, when you have all of the authority and all of the knowledge and all of the power, you can feel comfortable with where you're at. And when you draw a line in the sand, you know that you're on the right side of it. Um, but when that line gets kind of like, moved or shaken up or said, hey, it's not really aligned at all. It's kind of more of a, a trapezoid. No, I have no idea. And everybody can be included. That, of course, would shake somebody up. So I, I kind of understand that.
0: Yeah, it was a really pivotal mo- moment for the church and church members um, to to become less self-conscious um, about about what the church is about and to let God let Christ, let the spirit be what the church is about rather than us.
2: I, you know, that this reminds me of if you ask, ask the question, what, what makes a community truly prophetic? Um, I think of the theologian, Paul Tillich, who in one of his books refers to the spirit of the prophetic or being prophetic as the capacity for self-criticism, mm-hmm. And so our our community in the 1960s institutionally went through a long period of being theologically and historically self-critical. And and from Tillich's perspective, nothing can be more prophetic than that. That's what the ancient Israelite prophets did. They They were critics of the status quo and critics of the way things were being done and said. And they said, no, this does not live up to who the living God is. So... Um, I I look back on this period, even though it was really difficult for our ancestors in the community of Christ, very difficult time. And yet if you want to be a prophetic church, why wouldn't there be difficult times?
1: Yeah. I mean, if, if we are called to be prophetic people, then um, we always have to like look through our own lens and our own experience and reason and tradition and scripture, like Charmaine Mm -hmm. mentioned earlier. And, we may come out in a different place, but as a people, we need to move forward together and try and understand. So that is painful at times. What is the doctrine of covenant scripture? Building sacred community can be arduous or something like that. Yes. Let me just tell you, it is. <laughs> it's true.
2: <laughs> yeah, very much.
1: So you guys have talked about um, how we have progressed as a church, and I would say move forward as a church from being Joseph centered, where um, we had all dependency on Joseph Smith Jr. He, We looked to him for all of the answers to all of our questions to moving to a church or institution-centered um, organization where, you know, that kind of makes sense to me too. We, it was time to start doing some actual building of some actual churches and spreading out and letting people know that we, who we were and that we were around. And then moving into, of course, through that painful time as a Christ-centered church, which, just thrills me to no end. So how has moving through these eras made us a different church? Hmm.
0: One thing I think that it's really made a huge difference is in transparency. And, And it might sound kind of strange, but in going through that difficult self-awareness as we looked at our history, um, we could no longer have the just the pretty picture history that we had told ourselves for a long time. And though that was uncomfortable, um, it was important to say, eh, well, I really think it, it drew us to a place where, our recognition for the need of for the grace of God,
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: became very much more um, our focus. That it's not about us doing it all right and being the perfect people because we weren't, um, and so that made required that we have a level of honesty and openness about Joseph, about our own history, and about. Um, our continued need to grow. And so, and leaders became, I, I would say, over the last uh, 40 to 50, well, especially the last 30 to 40 years, have themselves been more um, transparent in how the church works. And things that come to mind right away for me are the ways in which the last, at least the last, three and maybe the last four president prophets of the church have been very intentional with letting um, the church know what their process is as far as bringing insight from God to the church and some of the struggle that is related to that. And some of the times of saying, is this me or is this you God? what how do how do we understand this? How do we put words to this and they they made that process um much more transparent and um, every day in a way that we could really begin to sense that this is not some zapping of god you know God zapping the prophet and <laughs> taking over their larynx and making them say certain <laughs> things or their hand to write certain things. But this is a process, a long process um, that takes self-awareness on the part of the person as well as prayerfulness and openness. So those kinds of things I think um, have been big changes.
2: It's also made us a more internationally sensitive church. Um, we, you know, now we do everything in three languages, right? Um, until 1960, gracious, the, the church, the prime English was the major language of the church. And, you know, Charmaine likes to, when we're doing this as a seminar with with church folks, likes to put up uh, a map of the world. And, you know, from 1830 to, you know, 1960 showed that we were in basically 10 countries or so, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then from from 1960 to today, we we we've you know, exponentially increased the number of countries we are. So, how does that change us? Well, it changes our processes at World Conference. We we have simultaneous translation. We have uh, because people can't get visas from countries some countries to come to the U.S. for World Conference. We do proportional voting so that the voting is fair. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that that this shift to Christ as center has required of us an openness to the world an openness to others that wasn't there before and also i would say you know what if if christ is really becoming your center it's a lot easier to deal with this, with the skeletons in your own closet because it's no longer really about you and so it's it's not quite so easy to shock church people nowadays about <laughs> stuff that joseph smith junior might have done uh, said who he might have done it with. It's it's like you know uh, we can accept that he's he was human. Uh, he made mistakes. Um, in some ways, theologically, he derailed the train. And yet, Christ is the center, and we have moved on. And it's not frankly about him. Um, we <laughs> we don't have to somehow preserve an image of who he was, which is not historically possible anyway in order for us to be content with who, who we are becoming, because Christ is our center.
0: Yeah, and something you mentioned, Carlo, really is another one of those things and then that has been changing and growing in our midst theologically. And, and it's also spiritual, and that is the idea that as a people, our job is to hear the Spirit, discern together, and respond together as a prophetic people um, rather than simply uh, people with a profit, with a prophet. and that has um, that has had produced all kinds of amazing fruit in our midst. As far as um, the sense that we we need to depend and trust each other in this process, mm-hmm. that we need to hear each other, that each person's experience is valuable, and that each of us can be open to God and have things to contribute to where it is we move forward in the world. And that's been particularly important because another thing that has happened theologically uh, is that there has been more openness to, um, rather than setting down rules about what behaviors must be of trying to be more open to uh, the real lives of people and the ethical questions that people face. And so that has required that we listen to each other, that we acknowledge that some countries have some issues they need to deal with and other countries have other issues that need to be dealt with so that that peace, equality, the worth of all persons can can grow and so there's been more of a willingness to deal with some difficult uh, social and political mm-hmm. uh, areas of um, attention
2: I think it's it's also fair to say that this this journey has left us with challenges um, I think one challenge certainly in the United States and Canada is that a lot of community of Christ congregations, uh, were established in the church-centered era, mm-hmm. and so the <laughs> the the theological leftovers or shadows from the the church-centered era are still part of those congregations' identity. And you can't just like force that out. That's you know part of who you've been. But I think uh, we have some struggles and challenges with congregations, you know, intentionally moving more completely into the Christ-centered era uh where you where you see that happening, what you typically see is a church becoming really really open to its community and to working in its community for the 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 welfare of others. Um, that would be a, an example of christ centered service um, but that's that's a challenge uh, the The institution has moved, but individual congregations are in you know in different stages of that movement
0: another huge thing is that we moved from thinking of ourselves as being the originators and the ones that would make the kingdom come through our righteousness and our, you know, all our good works, to recognizing that the kingdom of God is first and foremost centered in Christ, in Christ, um, past, present, and, and ever before us. And that to recognize the other places in the world where God is at work and to uh, lend our voice to some of those places as well as be the initiating voice in some other places but inviting um, other groups' denominations to uphold issues of, uh, of peace and justice. And so there's been a much bigger sense that the kingdom of God is God's work uh, rather than than ours, uh, our accomplishment, and I think that's really important uh, for a lot of reasons. So that's another big shift theologically.
1: Right. What I hear, am hearing you say is that in in those cases, in the cases with. Um, W. Wallace Smith saying that we would have to go with Jesus and with, um, congregations opening up when they become Christ centered. It seems like a, l- a lot of vulnerability comes along with that as well. A vulnerability that says, maybe we don't know everything. Maybe you can help us learn more about who Christ is for you, and that might change who Christ is for us, but. We're willing to walk that journey with you. And it's, and that's scary. <laughs> it's scary to say, maybe we don't know everything, but I mean, I really think that's where we are called to be because when you walk with people on their journey, then they are much more willing to walk with you and to, um, try and understand you as you understand them. It's just a much more beautiful journey that you're on together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, really is. And, and it also broadens one's view of what salvation means because back in the church centered era, it meant being in the right church. And I think I can safely say that for us as a church today, salvation comes in many ways and it comes to individuals in a variety of ways, but it also comes to communities and all of creation and um, that Salvation again is God's work in our midst, and that we have much to learn from each other um, in, in that walk. Just as you said, Carla.
2: You know, you, you use the word vulnerable, Carla. It's a great word. Um, I think being Christ centered is exciting but also terrifying. Because yes. Because if you really think about it, Christ is the one who, according to Philippians, emptied himself, right, for the sake of others. And Thinking in Trinitarian terms, Christ is the embodiment of God's vulnerability to creation. And so if we're going to go with Jesus, which we said we're going to do, then why wouldn't we become vulnerable, a vulnerable church, a church that is willing to empty itself uh, for the sake of others? Um, that's surely the sign of being Christ-centered, is that, that you, your, your communal life corresponds to who he is and what he has done. So, but it's terrifying because nobody really wants to do that on, the, on their own, do they?
1: <laughs> no, it also requires a huge amount of patience and uh, mm. like we can't force things to happen anymore. Like we used to want to do it like, well, no, I'm pretty sure we have to do it this way. Well, I'm pretty sure we don't. <laughs> Let's wait and see where God is talking to us at this point. So, gosh, yeah. there's just so much to, there really is a lot to consider when you have Christ as your focus and Christ as your lens and Christ as your center. There's, ugh, it can be really frustrating, but also rewarding as we know. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. um, we're coming close to the end of our time together and I have to tell you guys, I'm a little bit disappointed in you. Uh oh. Mm-hmm. Well, on the preaching chart, you never mentioned my very, very favorite part.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Yes. On the preaching. Where chart.
1: Are the, uh, the, The place on the path
0: that is about at twelve years of age, where (laughs) the the narrow path goes steadily, steadily inexorably upwards towards celestial glory, and the broad path—let's just call it the fun path. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yes, the fun path. And,
1: And
0: on the particular chart that we use the most, at that point, it says, "Girls say no."
1: And then at this point, Charmaine puts her hands on her hips and says, boys shouldn't ask. That's right. I think it should say, boys don't ask. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that broad path is full of gambling and... Dancing. Dancing.
2: And and revelry.
1: Oh, oh, all types of revelry. Well, thank you so much for mentioning that part of the preaching chart. That is by far my favorite. Very subtle hint. Yes, we, we
2: obviously needed a prompt. And <laughs> people, <have> to, <laughs> people people need to see the chart sometime when we're when we're actually using it in teaching a class and they, they do. A visual eye from that Maybe chart.
1: if you could send us a picture of it, we could put it up with this podcast.
2: Well we have a we have a electronic photo of it, uh digital photo of it, of a, of one that's like the one we use um which I can send to you you can you yeah, can Yeah, that'd be
1: great. We'll we'll post with, it with this podcast. This,
2: with this caveat, don't use this in church.
1: <laughs> Never use yeah. this in church. Um so well thank you so much for for talking to us about it. Is there any last thoughts that you have before we we sign off? I think just
0: um that God is gracious and is patient with us and um meets us where we are. I mean, I think that's one of the things we always try to say when we're going through these three stages and we remind people that there are quite a few people of, of, particularly of certain generations who may still be in the church um, centered era and, and to not, um, you know, not diminish them, to not Mm -hmm. uh, mock them or anything like that, because, God has shown that God is very capable of meeting us wherever we are, if our hearts are open and if we are seeking. And that even when, even though we moved past the church-centered time, God met us there too yeah. and deepened who we were individually and as a body. And God is doing that now. And that if we are open, um, undoubtedly there will be, some some other eras in the future that we can see and name um, and identify where God has has called us to some new things and to not be afraid of that but also to trust that um, that God that the Spirit um, will continue to challenge us and and continue to call us to be involved in the world.
1: I already have my fingers crossed for a potluck era. Ooh.
2: About, like era. I think you know all all I all I can add to that is that you know when Jesus says in John's Gospel in response to the disciples, he says, I am the way. I think he was trying to say to the disciples, you guys need to get into your head that the journey is your home.
1: Oh shoot.
0: Well, <laughs> yes.
1: Well no, that's good. That's oh man. <laughs> You stopped me in my tracks, Tony. I rarely, it is rare that I don't have something to say, but the journey is your home. That's really great. And what a great place to, to close off. Uh, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and gentle listeners. I hope that you continue to journey with us. And as we, delve into community Christ theology and so many other items that I'm sure you've learned on this podcast. (laughs) Um, So Tony and Charmaine, thank you so much for being here. The views expressed in this
0: episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official views of the Latter-day Seekers team or of Community of Christ. The music has been provided by Ben Howington. You can find his music at mormonguitar.com.
2: I, I smell wonder bread on your breath. <laughs> <laughs>